In episode 95, when iOS quality control issues persist and it feels like Apple isn't listening, there are still things we can do. Should there be exemptions for taxi and rideshare drivers who don't want to transport guide dogs for religious reasons? And plenty of other tech thoughts and questions. Hi, uh, Jonathan and listeners. This is Ross Winetsky in Las Cruces, New Mexico in the United States. I listened to last week's show where you were talking about the problems with the new quickly developed patch for uh, iOS. There's another glitch with it, equally unfortunate to the one with the Braille, which is I have an iPhone 11, which is face recognition, and I usually use the number code rather than the face recognition because it's just a little more consistent and works better. And on this new download for iOS 14, I think it's 14.4 now, when you tap those, it used to make a nice, hearty, earthy clunk so you know that you hit the key. Now, it's got no noise. It's just you have to tap and hope that you're, you're typing onto the right letter. I did call up the Apple accessibility people, and they know about it, and they hope to fix it soon. But I just thought that you might want to let people know that that's another glitch that they probably already do know if they've tried using it. Other than that, we're here in America hoping that President Biden will do more than our old president did to um, get the vaccine out. It's still not easy to get a vaccine here. And we're just hoping, hoping for the best. Yeah, so many people are just over this, aren't they? Thank you, Ross. Good to hear from you in New Mexico. And I hope, too, that vaccines get rolled out everywhere quickly. Here, we don't have COVID-19 in the community, but there is anxiety about how long it is taking for New Zealand to get vaccine. I guess people aren't very sympathetic at the moment worldwide to the idea that New Zealand should be a high priority for the vaccine because we're just going about our lives. Our borders are largely closed, of course, but things are going okay for us. We just got an unemployment statistic out at 4.9%, which is well below the OECD average and even shocked a lot of economic commentators who were expecting something quite a bit higher than that. So it is a bit extraordinary what's happening here, but there's just this fear that it's a house of cards that could all come crashing down if, say, that South African variant got out into the wild for long enough and we were forced to lock down again. So it is all pretty precarious. But certainly when you're in a country where so many people continue to die and be adversely affected by the pandemic, get very sick, you know, it's a, what can you say? It's been a very tough little while so we wish you all the best over in the united states ross thank you also for alerting us to this business with the unlocking it's one i didn't know about because i only unlock with the passcode whenever i reboot the phone i always use face id because i find it so quick and so much easier so that's something people should be aware of hopefully no one is running the developer beta which came out the other day ios 14.5 because not only have the Braille issues not been addressed at this point? And it may be throughout the cycle, so don't panic yet. But they've also got this really terrible bug that got introduced, which is broken Bluetooth keyboards. Basically, the command key and the shift key don't work. And what that means is that you 
can't use keyboard shortcuts, you can't capitalize letters, you can't use punctuation marks that are on the number row, like the exclamation symbol or the hash key or anything like that. So when you're using a device like the Mantis with a Bluetooth keyboard, it kind of renders it even more dodgy than it was with the iOS 14.4 update. And I decided to apply the developer beta in the hope that Apple had already responded, but actually... It's much, much worse. So we, we hope that this beta cycle will cause everything to uh, resolve itself. Hello, Jonathan, says Mickey Quenta. I had a lengthy call with Apple Accessibility on Monday. At first, the advisor, who has been with Apple for nine years, had a sketchy knowledge of Braille displays. You cannot assume that because they work for the accessibility department that they're experts about voiceover. By the end of the call the rep had a far better idea of what we were experiencing and said that he would pass the information along. At this point, I haven't seen anything from Apple but the case number. Next, email from Sandro Greco in Montreal, who very politely tells me that I've been mispronouncing Greco. So I'm so sorry about that because I try not to do that. I will know for the future. Thank you for the gentle correction. Sandro says, on the topic of voiceover, it is a shame that Apple has been a leader for screen readers for phones, but they just haven't done it justice in Braille access. You did mention recently that they have a small team who manage the voiceover portion of the operating system, and maybe that is the reason why they are having trouble with perfecting it. The other problem with Apple, in my opinion, is that they certainly do not seem receptive towards their customers who have a great deal of experience and knowledge of Braille that can offer such valuable input towards the development of Braille access. Overall, their whole family of products certainly could use improvements on the Braille front too. I believe that Braille users are plenty, so wouldn't it be advantageous for Apple to invest time and money towards accessibility? In a competitive market such as computer technology and the like, Attracting customers to your company and the products should be the goal, right? When JAWS users look at Apple and the products they offer, especially those who rely on Braille, the answer, I believe, is simple. At least the Braille users I know. A PC, computer with JAWS, and a Braille display is all you need. So if Apple wants more blind people to switch to using their products, especially Braille users, They should take a closer look at the other side and learn from what they see and take the time to learn from those who are concerned with it. I wonder if anyone in the mushroom crowd works for Apple or knows anyone who does that's blind. I actually have a long-time friend who's blind that works at the Apple store. He was hired about two years ago and does everything every other salesperson does there. The added advantage having him there is that he knows their accessibility like the back of his hand. So if a blind person goes to that downtown store, he can certainly serve the customer in the best way possible. If they can hire someone blind to work at the store, maybe they should hire blind people to work in the development team. I don't even know if they even have blind people already working with them, and if they don't, they should. Thanks for writing in, Sandro. I have a couple of comments on your comments. First, regarding Braille, I do agree to a point. When Apple Braille is working well on the iPhone, I think it's in really good shape for output. They're doing a really nice job with the output. I think the contracted Braille input is where some more work could be done. On Mac, it is way behind what JAWS is offering. 
in both input and output, and that's really unfortunate. They do have some advantages. Like, you can connect a lot of Braille displays to one Mac, and that can be quite nice for a classroom situation. So that's pretty slick, the way they've got that working. But the individual using Braille on a daily basis on the Mac, it's not keeping up, unfortunately, and I would love to see that addressed. Like you, Sandro, I'm passionate about Braille. Many Braille readers are, and I think that passion stems from the fact that Braille has been under threat for a long time by sighted people who think that all this talking technology, all this computer technology, somehow replaces Braille. And as we know, refreshable Braille displays have never been more exciting or vibrant. We also know that the unemployment rate among the Braille reading population is significantly lower than the unemployment rate of blind people overall, significantly lower. But unfortunately, the number of Braille readers has declined significantly over the last 50 years or so. I think we can probably attribute mainstreaming to that and the fact that teaching Braille requires skilled teachers to do that and they've been spread all too thin. We have talked about that on the podcast in the past. So some of the data I've seen suggests that on average, less than 10% of legally blind people in Western countries are Braille readers now. You've then got to factor in the number of people who choose to use iOS and the number of people who can afford to use Braille displays. And all of that means that we are unfortunately talking about a tiny subset of a tiny subset. So that first subset is the number of people who use VoiceOver, who actually turn VoiceOver on. And I suspect Apple can measure that. And the second is how many people within that VoiceOver user base choose to use Braille. And it would be quite tiny by comparison. Now, regarding blind people working for Apple, to Apple's credit, they do have blind people working In many areas of the company, including sales and tech support and, yes, development too. I think it would be amazing if they had a disabled person in charge of Apple's accessibility efforts. You know, Apple's really big on diversity, and I think that would send a very strong message. But I salute Apple for the number of blind people they employ, and I also salute all the blind people who work there. Having been a blind person who has worked for technology companies, sometimes in quite senior roles, I do sympathize with how it can be when you make a decision as a blind person to be a part of the team or you're invited to be and things aren't going quite the way that you personally would like. And it is hard when you're a part of a community like the blind community and you're really wired into that community, perhaps through social media or lurking about on email lists or listening to podcasts like this, it can be really demoralizing when you know in your heart of hearts that the company you work for is letting the side down and you want to be a part of the solution. And it's hard not to feel a bit personally attacked, even though I don't think that's the intention of anyone to personally attack any blind person working for Apple. So I hope that we can respect that kind of dilemma that blind people who work for a technology company whose products we use might be facing and just celebrate the fact that they're in there. With these sorts of things, You never really know the discussions that go on behind the scenes, the advocacy that they might be doing internally to try and push these issues along. So it's great that they are there. Hi, Jonathan, says Eileen Mizrahi. I'm using a Brilliant 14 with my 6S running iOS 14.4 and having issues, as you reported in your podcast, on the subject. There are two annoying problems that have popped up. One, when in the native mail app on the phone... It appears that I can use the Bradient 14 and process in the address edit field, but no such luck. 
I also hear the other installed keyboards being cycled through, a definite bug that Apple needs to fix. Two, I begin with turning on the Bradient 14 first and then unlocking the iPhone. The Bradient 14 connects and I am able to use it properly until the phone goes to sleep. When I go to unlock it again, the Bradient will not function. All these issues began with the 14.4 upgrade when I took the plunge to upgrade. Unfortunately, I can't downgrade to 13.6.1 at this point. I waited to upgrade to the latest operating system until the direct touch was corrected for the other third-party keyboards I use with the phone. Maybe it will take a village for all of us to place a complaint with Apple to get their act together regarding the use of Braille displays with their iOS devices. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you for writing, Eileen. Isn't it ironic that you held off upgrading your iOS because of one Apple bug, only to upgrade and get another? And this is exactly the point, that this is not new. It's going on and on and on and manifesting itself, not just in Braille, but well beyond Braille, to all aspects of voiceover. Here's Marissa Solon, and she says, hello, Mr. Mosen. Well, hello, Ms. Solon. I am not pleased with Apple's accessibility. The fact that each time a new iOS update is released, it breaks something that was once accessible. It seems as though they don't care about their customers. If you send them an email or call them, usually the representative cannot reproduce the issues you are experiencing. Thus, your issue is less likely to get fixed. Sometimes the reps have no clue about how voiceover works. It's sad that Apple prides themselves on accessibility. Then they see issues with Braille displays like with iOS 14.4. I use a Freedom Scientific Focus 40 with no issues on my 7 Plus. If it wasn't because I am not confident with Android, I would switch. Thanks for sharing your frustration with us, Marissa. I understand the frustration. I absolutely do. It's hard when we get an experience like this not to brand the entire company. And I hope I'm pretty straight down the middle when it comes to covering Apple here on Mosin at Large, which we do a lot. And there'll be some people who are Apple devotees who think I'm too harsh. And there will be some people who are not Apple devotees who think we devote far too much time to them. So I guess if you're annoying those who have strong views on both sides, maybe we're getting it about right. But I would say this, look at all the innovation that Apple has introduced to iOS consistently since they brought voiceover on in 2009. And I was one of those people who was quite cynical and thought they'll do just enough to get the regulators off their back and voiceover will probably stagnate. That is far from true. I was wrong about that. Every year, you get really substantial improvements. And VoiceOver is now one of the most capable screen readers on any platform. Just one of the most capable screen readers, full stop. And I'm grateful for it every day. They've done a remarkable job, and they keep innovating. You look at how quickly they were able to think of ways to get LiDAR working for blind people. They're thinking about this stuff, and that's great. But let me just say that I am very confident that there are people doing a lot of innovating at Apple who are just as frustrated by the quality control part of the business letting them down as blind people are. So I think we have to try 
to overcome our frustration to the extent that we can say there is a particular kind of problem at Apple. And the problem is relating to quality control. And always has been. The innovation keeps coming, but the verification of bugs and the resolution of bugs in a timely manner is where the side is being let down right now, right? And if you are a Braille user, because we are focusing on Braille at the moment because of what's happened in 14.4, really, where are you going to go? Because Braille on Android still has some way to go. You know, as we're covering on Mosin at Large, there are developments that are very positive with Android, with multi-touch being implemented for TalkBack. But Braille's still got some work to do in terms, you know, I think that Braille should be integrated into TalkBack and it should follow standard conventions that we've all become used to. So Android is still catching up in many respects, and we should give Apple credit for that. But I understand the frustration. Some of us are trying to hold down jobs with this technology, keep on top of things that are not just leisure-related, but actually relate to our ability to perform our job. And goodness only knows, it's difficult enough to get jobs. So to be let down by the technology is really upsetting, and I get why people are upset about it. But I think Apple as an entity, if we're going to sort of attribute motive or characteristics to an entire entity, which is always a dangerous business and difficult, I think Apple's corporate identity is very pro-accessibility. Because when you consider the amount of resource, I think there might be room for a bit more resource, but when you consider the amount of resource that's allocated to accessibility right now, I think you would be hard-pressed to make a cold, hard business case for that level of resourcing. And indeed, there was that famous moment a few years ago where a shareholder got up and said, what are you doing investing all this money in accessibility when the return on investment is so low? And Tim Cook got quite angry, and he actually said something like, we're not going to judge everything we do by the bloody return on investment. He actually used the word bloody. I was pretty impressed by that. And I think that that's the way that Apple feels. So sometimes when we face these issues, we get very black and white, good and bad. You know, Apple are either heroes or villains. It's a bit more nuanced than that. And I think we have to sort of target our concern where it's warranted. And that is specifically to quality control issues at Apple. So Then that begs the question, what can we do? What else could we try that we haven't done yet? The NFB, some years ago now, passed a resolution or two about Apple, and that got them into some hot water from the Apple fans who sort of said, well, why are you targeting Apple when Android is so much worse? And I think you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think that there should be some resolutions on Android as well, by the way. I don't feel qualified to suggest what they should be because... Android just doesn't meet my needs sufficiently for me to have investigated it for a while. Not since I had the Samsung Galaxy S8. But uh, those resolutions were tried and Apple basically ignored those completely. I've done an online petition. Others have done online petitions. No acknowledgement there. Apple, for a brief period, was engaging with our community in a meaningful way. They attended CSUN for a little while. They did, I think, go to the 20... 09 or 2010, perhaps, NFB convention. But Apple is large enough that if they choose to, they can ignore people who are fundamentally on Apple's side, on Apple's teams, but have some constructive criticism to offer. 
that's their choice. I don't think it's a sensible choice. I think it's a counterproductive choice. I think if you can find people who you know are rational and have some legitimate concerns, the sensible thing to do is to actually engage with them. Anyway, that's their choice. So what else is there that we can do at this point? I've been researching this, and I want to talk about some alternative advocacy strategies that each of us can potentially try. Before I get into the specifics of these things, though, I would say that I think this problem is wider than the blind community. And this gives me hope that perhaps at some point soon it will be addressed. I guess I am an eternal optimist. Look, for example, at what has happened in the last week. To much fanfare, Apple released a new version of the iCloud app for Windows. And when you installed it, you got access to a new extension that works in Chromium-based browsers, Google Chrome, Microsoft Edge, similar browsers like that. And the idea was that you would be able to use your iCloud passwords in these browsers. It's one of the big weaknesses for Apple of their solution is that there's no Safari for Windows. So you get all these passwords on iPhone and Mac, but you can't use them easily on Windows. So they finally had to buckle and come out with a Chrome extension. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why I prefer 1Password over iCloud for password management, because it's cross-platform. Well, within days, people were reporting very serious bugs, and the whole version of iCloud had to be pulled from the Windows Store and replaced with the previous version that didn't have the extension. There are various examples of quite serious bugs that have crept in to mainstream Apple technology. So the first thing I would suggest is that someone at Apple, preferably the chief executive, needs to acknowledge that there is a problem with quality control and owns that problem and commits to fixing it and explains when and how it's going to be fixed. The next thing I think that Apple should do is to improve communication with the wider disability community. You look at Facebook and Microsoft and Google and Twitter and Adobe and others, they all have accessibility accounts on social media channels. Now, Apple has a general support account. They have another for education. They have another for Apple Music and another for Apple TV Plus and several more. But they do not have an accessibility account. I think they need to engage with us. They need to respond to us. We need to be part of the dialogue. Next, I would draw listeners' attention to a proxy statement that was filed by Apple with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission at the beginning of the year. And that proxy statement says that Apple is going to modify its executives' bonuses this year based on how they act within the company's environmental, social, and governance values. And one of those values is accessibility. The decision about whether to award or even deduct pay based on these values is made by Apple's Compensation Committee. So who is the executive responsible for quality assurance at Apple, and who do we lobby? Well, the Compensation Committee is a committee of Apple's board. That's usual, that's appropriate. Sometimes committees like this are also known as the Human Resources and Remuneration, or HR, REM Committee. And here are the board members who are on that committee. The board chairman, Arthur D. Levinson, who's the former chairman and CEO of Genetech, 
Vice President Al Gore, the former Vice President of the United States, is also on the Compensation Committee, and I would hazard a guess that he might be very interested in knowing about the serious accessibility quality control issues we have had over the last many years. Andrea Jung is President and CEO of Grameen America, and she chairs the Compensation Committee. So those are the three key people who can determine that executives have underperformed in accessibility, one of Apple's key environmental, social and governance goals, and impose financial sanctions on the executive who was responsible. Now, who is that executive? Well, the buck would appear to stop with Craig Federighi, who is the Senior Vice President, Software Engineering at Apple. Apple's website states, Craig Federighi is Apple's Senior Vice President of Software Engineering, reporting to CEO Tim Cook. Craig oversees the development of iOS, macOS, and Siri. His teams are responsible for delivering the software at the heart of Apple's innovative products, including the user interface, applications, and frameworks. He'll clearly have managers reporting to him, but he reports to the chief executive, and he is the person that the organization as a whole holds to account for the quality of iOS. Having done this research last week, I wrote to Craig, and I didn't mention all of this research that I'd done last week because I wanted to give him an opportunity to respond. You may think that the idea that I would get a response from an executive at Apple is far-fetched, but it's not always. Obviously, they will choose which emails they respond to, but I read a lot of Apple forums on Reddit and other places, and occasionally Apple executives do respond to messages. So to give you an example of the kind of advocacy that I like to do, I'm going to read you this email that I sent to Craig Federighi. The subject of the email was persistent QA issues with voiceover accessibility on iOS, and the email reads, Hi, Craig. Thanks for all you do at Apple to change lives, including mine. I'm totally blind and hearing impaired and have written several books on iOS accessibility over the years. I also host one of the most popular podcasts in the blind community where Apple products are regularly covered. For all the empowering innovation, one concern many in the blind community have had over several years is the high-impact voiceover bugs which make it into official releases – despite being reported and documented by the community in beta. The latest example is a series of Braille bugs in iOS 14.4, which are forcing blind people to choose between an important security fix and quality access to Braille. Ironically, it is Braille Literacy Month in January, so the timing is incredibly unfortunate. I have always admired your passion for the difference Apple makes, and it occurred to me that these issues and the depth of feeling about them may not be trickling up to your level. I would be honoured if you'd be willing to talk with me about wider iOS issues in an accessibility context on my podcast, but failing that, please know that many who are concerned about the poor QA that is tarnishing the amazing innovation Apple is doing remain willing to be a constructive part of the solution. There has to be a way of making better assessment of high-impact bugs that can affect people's productivity and appropriate action taken before release. I very much appreciate you reading this email. Keep up the great work. Now, I have not had a response to that email, and it was always a long shot that I would. But I do want to remind people that we do have power. 
we pay for these things, we are entitled to speak up when they are buggy and they don't meet our needs, when our reasonable expectations are not being met. If you own Apple stock or you know someone who owns Apple stock, Apple's annual shareholders meeting is taking place virtually this year and that happens on the 23rd of February. Shareholders have until the 22nd of February to submit questions. No guarantee, of course, that any question that someone submits on accessibility and quality control is going to be selected. But one thing we know for sure, if no one tries, then it's not going to come up at the shareholders meeting. So if you have the ability to have a question submitted, whether in your own right or because you know someone who's an Apple stockholder, then now is the time to act. I would encourage everybody who submits in this way to acknowledge the incredible progress that Apple has made with innovation in the accessibility space, but to focus on the quality control issues that so many of us are experiencing and are directly affected by. I would love to see some questions on this subject submitted, and it would be wonderful to have them selected and have the chief executive acknowledge the issue and give us some details about how it might be addressed in the near term. There's also the possibility that consumer law might be invoked in your country. If you have law that says that a product has to be fit for purpose and it's sold as doing a certain thing and then it consistently does not do that thing, you may have address under that legislation. And finally, if you follow the tech news, you will be aware that there's a lot of discussion around big tech and antitrust going on right now. And I believe that this could be relevant in the context of the problems that we are having with quality control at Apple as well. You may have read the report or heard summaries of it that was released last year from Congress in the United States that suggested that action needs to be taken, potentially to break up some of these big firms. In the context of Apple, there was some concern expressed that the App Store is run by the same people who do the operating system and the hardware and that that creates distortions in the economy and the marketplace in the Apple world. Sensitive to all of this going on, and it's not just in the United States, it's also in the EU. Australia is doing some work on this, but specifically relating to the media at the moment. Their inquiries are pretty narrow, but the EU and the US are interesting to watch in this regard. And as part of Apple's sensitivity to the discussions that are going on here, you will recall that in iOS 14, They made some concessions, and now you can choose a different app to be your default email client and web browser. And in most cases, you can install third-party alternatives to what Apple includes on your device. You can have lots of weather apps and reminder apps and email clients and a few web browsers, and on and on it goes. Usually, where there's an Apple something built in, there's something else from a third party that you can download. That is not the case with a screen reader. If you are totally blind and you want to use your iPhone, then voiceover is the only game in town. And I think this is quite interesting. Android, for example, has an API that allows third parties to develop their own screen readers. There's a bit of that going on. I don't know whether any of them have really reached critical mass, but it is possible. Obviously, on Windows, we've had various screen readers over the years. Microsoft now has quite a capable screen reader in Narrator, But you've got JAWS and NVDA and Supernova, and there may well be other products too lurking around there that I'm not aware of. But VoiceOver is it on iOS. So if Apple continues to pay lip service to the quality of this product, inconveniencing those of us who need this for our jobs, potentially jeopardizing safety in some situations, 
Right now I'm thinking of deaf-blind people for whom Braille is not an adjunct or a nice thing to have. It's their window on the world. So this is not a trivial matter. So if lip service continues to be paid, I think that we can tap into the discussions that are going on about antitrust and point out to legislators that the way Apple has structured iOS, they have a monopoly on screen reading. No one can give us an alternative. An advantage of that, if Apple were forced to move on this, could be that VoiceOver becomes a separate app because shining some light on the monopolistic nature of VoiceOver on iOS could cause Apple to develop some sort of API for screen readers. If third parties can use that, then Apple could use it too. And that would mean that when there are significant bugs like this, it would allow Apple to push updates to VoiceOver in the App Store or through some means other than a full iOS update. That would allow the accessibility people at Apple to resolve some of these mission-critical issues a lot more quickly than they currently are able to do. So if you do live in a country where they are thinking about these antitrust issues and these monopolistic issues, I would encourage you to contact legislators with an interest in this subject and acquaint them with what's going on. So is it possible for us to advocate constructively and politely for some progress on these persistent quality assurance issues while also being incredibly grateful for all that Apple has given us? Absolutely, I believe it is, and we should. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-667-36. Hello, Jonathan Mosen. This is Oase Patel. I have emailed you before on your podcast and have had my thoughts heard. Thank you for sharing them. As I'm listening to your podcast live right now, I have a point to make. While I understand that people should not refuse taking guide dogs on a taxi or on an Uber, I do feel that there is one exception. The exception is religious priority. If my religion does not allow me to do so, under that circumstance, I think you should accept it. And please note, this advice is coming from a blind person. So, yes, I do feel that that Uber drivers and taxi drivers should be able to refuse a guide dog or any dog and any animal if they wish not to under religious circumstances. Thanks for sharing that, Oase. I want to first give this issue some important context. First, we're talking about people who willingly enter a profession that's a public service. So we're not talking about whether you feel comfortable taking a blind friend in your private vehicle that costs you lots of dosh or anything like that. We are talking about doing what you as the driver signed up for, which is to provide service to members of the public according to the laws of the country that you're in. No exceptions, according to the laws of the country that you live in. First, let's have a look at this from the member of the public's point of view. 
who happens to be blind. Now, presently, I'm not a guide dog handler, but Bonnie is. This situation is so stressful and sadly so common that Bonnie tends not to use Uber anymore. I choose to use Uber because I like the user experience. I use it so often that I'm a Diamond Rewards member and I like the rewards as well. You know, I get 15% off Uber Eats and that sort of thing. But I have to say that when I travel with Bonnie, I often get a sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach whenever we call an Uber. Are we going to face discrimination today? And I'm just going about my lawful day-to-day business here. Sometimes I let my guard down and I don't think about it. And I was in that mode, that lovely mode on that Saturday night that we were talking about on last week's show. We had a lovely night out with my oldest son, Richard, and his partner, Nadia, at an Asian fusion restaurant. And we have this routine when we've been out to dinner where typically Bonnie goes up and she pays the bill while I get out the iPhone and organize the Uber. We were in great spirits. And then we simply tried to do what we are lawfully entitled to do and take an Uber home, only to find that the driver refused to take us. Now, let's say for the sake of this discussion that there was a religious reason for him refusing to take us, and I think that could well have been possible. Now, in a situation like that one, there's not too much harm done. I mean, it's very annoying. It is frustrating, and it takes a bit of time, but there aren't too many serious consequences. We simply called another Uber. It turned up in fairly short order, and it took a few minutes out of my day to do the work to ensure that Uber intervenes, the driver will now be required to take a course on the law. And if they break the law one more time, they will be deplatformed. And thankfully, we will never have to encounter them again. If they learn their lesson, then great. If there's a second strike, they are off the Uber platform altogether. But what if I'm a guide dog handler that uses Uber in my job? Changing perceptions and getting more disabled people into work is what we do at the organization of which I'm CEO, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this. We spend time educating and informing employers that they often put a driver's license requirement in their job ads where really there's no need to do that. Clearly, in some jobs it is. If you're a courier driver or something like that, then you need to have a license. But if you're simply required to get to an appointment, then the driver's license is the means. It's not the ends. The outcome that the employer needs to be concerned with is that the person that they're hiring can get to an appointment on time. So let's say that you as a blind person or an organization like the one I work for has convinced the employer that this is something worth giving a go. You finally got your job, you convinced them there was no need for a license, and you've been waiting to get this opportunity to prove yourself in the workplace for ages. And now you're up and running and you're rolling. Now you call an Uber to get to a big appointment. There may be a lot for the business riding on this appointment. You've done everything right, but then the driver turns up and says his religion prevents him from taking you in his Uber or taxi and speeds away. Now it takes another 10 to 15 minutes because perhaps you're coming from home in the suburbs to get another vehicle to you and you turn up late and feeling understandably upset because of the discrimination you've just experienced and you bomb in that meeting and the business suffered and the employer says, see, I told you you needed a driver's license. Now in that scenario, the blind person did nothing wrong. They simply sought to rely on a public service 
provided by someone who knew the law when they signed up to provide that service. So on the face of it, some people might think that an argument relating to religious exemption is appropriate in a tolerant society. Let's live in an age where diversity and tolerance is accepted and embraced and cherished. And of course, I agree with that fundamental principle, but it isn't that clear-cut because the bedrock of a well-run society is living in a nation of laws with which we must all comply. This means that if there's no legal provision for it, simply saying that you won't abide by the law because it's against your religion doesn't and mustn't cut it. An individual's claim of religious exemption cannot trump the law. If we allow that, then we've got anarchy. You know, I'm going to start a religion that says that my particular God that I believe in or I've invented or whatever tells me that it's immoral, irreligious to pay taxes. If I travel with a guide dog and get in a taxi or an Uber, which the law says I can do, and a driver refuses to take me, which the law says he must do, then the driver has committed an illegal act, pure and simple, and he has to be prosecuted. As Bonnie and I discussed last week, sometimes people are fearful of dogs and they use religion as an excuse to complicate the issue. But you can overcome fear. And if there is that fear that you can't overcome, then driving an Uber or a taxi isn't for you. Now, if you've got a religious issue, then surely ensuring that the blind person and their dog is in the back of the vehicle so that there is no contact between the blind person, the dog and the driver takes care of the issue. I've had the honour of advocating for various law changes that have improved the lives of blind people in New Zealand and where our copyright law was concerned, ultimately globally, thanks to what led to the Marrakesh Treaty. We all must respect that process. If we make our case to legislators, they debate the issue, consider your arguments, decide in your favour and pass a law, then all of us who live in the country concerned must comply with the law. If you don't like the law, then the option you have is, of course, to advocate to get the law changed, and I fully support people exercising that process. If I was considering migrating to a country where laws and attitudes towards dogs were different, residents of that country would tell me the same thing. And fair enough. In this country, there is no religious exemption for the carriage of guide dogs, so if you drive a taxi or an Uber and you don't want to carry a guide dog, then go and find another career. The question then follows, of course, what would happen if a certain religious group went to Parliament or Congress or whatever the legislature is called in your particular country and started lobbying politicians for a religious exemption to the guide dog rules? I would march in the streets over this. The reason why I would submit against it, march against it, campaign against it, is that this is a very slippery slope. First, let's look at the Oxford Dictionary definition of religion. Now, actually, defining religion is uh, quite a contentious question, but if we're going to pick a definition, I reckon it's pretty safe to go with the Oxford English Dictionary's definition, so I'm going to use that one. And it defines religion as belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power especially a personal god or gods. So if we say belief in certain gods should grant you an exemption from civil rights legislation, where do we actually stop with this line of thinking? And who decides 
which religions and then which individual beliefs within those religions are worthy of that kind of exemption. Religions are simply human-made constructs. Anyone can start one. After the success of the Star Wars movies, for example, even in the 70s when the first Star Wars movie came out, some people identified their religion as Jediism. And then, of course, there is the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, which, although satirical, has actually qualified in some countries for certain religious recognition. Right here in New Zealand, Pastafarians, for example, which is what they call adherence to this religion, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, they have been authorized as marriage celebrants, as the movement satisfies criteria laid down for organizations that primarily promote religious, philosophical, or humanitarian convictions. And fair enough too, I have no problem with that. It's doing no harm. People can believe whatever they like, as long as it doesn't impinge on the rights of other citizens to go about their lawful business. And that is the key issue here. We're talking about the provision of a public service. The precedent that you set when you start granting religious exemptions is extremely serious and scary. What if you and your life partner check into a hotel after a long day of traveling and the hotel declines to check you in because you're not married and they adhere to a religious perspective that says that sleeping together outside of wedlock is sinful. And we've all heard the stories in the United States about cake makers who declined to make a wedding cake for a gay couple because they say gay marriage is against their religion. But that ship has sailed. Gay marriage is the law of the land in the United States. The Supreme Court has made that clear. They had that debate, and those who opposed gay marriage lost. You can't pick and choose who you will serve based on your prejudice, not in a civilized society where you're providing a service to a member of the public. Let's not forget that in the 19th century, Various Bible verses, including some from Leviticus, which is my favorite book, were used to justify slavery. And in fact, that was the case well into the 20th century in the U.S., where segregation was practiced. Who determines which parts of ancient religious texts, some of which contain outrageous things in the context of the 21st century, are applicable for these religious exemptions? There's a lot of ritual human sacrifice, for example, in the Old Testament of the Bible. Would it then be right for someone to claim religious exemption for murdering their child because they believe in the Old Testament principles of ritual sacrifice? There are so many random examples that are dangerous I can immediately think of. What happens, for example, if I get into an Uber and I ask to be taken to my favorite steakhouse and the Uber driver says that they really feel uncomfortable taking me there because they are vegan and don't want in any way to play a part in the eating of living creatures. Or perhaps a cow has a special place in their religion. Does it make a difference if they have a strong ethical view on it or whether they claim adherence to a religion that precludes it? In New Zealand, prostitution and therefore brothels are legal. Would it be right for someone with a religious objection who drives an Uber or a taxi to decline to take someone there if a passenger is doing nothing illegal? So my fundamental point is this. In a nation of laws, in a well-run society, you simply cannot have people 
unilaterally playing the religious card. You know what the law is when you sign up. And if you don't know what the law is when you sign up, I do have confidence that at least here, where ride-sharing and taxi companies are concerned, there's, there's minimal training that explains to you what the law is pertaining to guide dogs. And if you don't like it when you find that out, then that is the chance you have to quit before you go into service as a taxi driver or an Uber driver. If you don't like the law, then do another job and advocate to change the law if you really feel that strongly about it. But there will be people waiting in the wings to argue the opposing view, and I'll be right there. Liel Ben-Simon is feeling the frustration in Israel and says, Hi, Jonathan and all. I want to comment on the problem of Uber app. I have a guide dog myself, and I'm in Israel. I have problems with a similar app. It's called Get, G-E-T-T. I have the problem in different cities regarding refusal of my guide dog. There are drivers that won't take the dog because of the fur or the smell that remains. And by law in Israel, a taxi driver has to take a blind person with a guide dog. He is not allowed to decline. I'm in the process of suing. Thanks, Liel. Let us know how you get on with that. Hi, Jonathan. Regarding guide dog refusal due to religious concerns, I have a doubt regarding this because I am not a guide dog user, so I never used guide dog. While booking cab services like Uber or Ola, etc., why don't the companies provide their option in the app asking whether you have service animal or not? So if you say you have service animal, then the app will redirect to those drivers who are comfortable with service animal. And if you say, no, you don't have service animal, any drivers are welcome to pick you up. Well, the reason for that will vary from country to country, Anil, but certainly in New Zealand, Australia, Canada, the UK, the United States, and probably some other countries, that would be illegal. And it would be turning back the clock. Blind people advocated for a long time around the world for the premise to be accepted that if a blind person is traveling with a guide dog and they need that dog for mobility purposes, then if you are providing any service, you cannot refuse the dog. There may be a small number of exceptions, but that is the general rule in many Western countries. Now, of course, laws can be changed. And so then you go on and say, well, should it be changed? And why I believe it should not be changed is that when you give people the right to opt out of taking a blind person with a guide dog, what you immediately do is you reduce supply. And that means it will take longer for an Uber or a taxi to come to a blind person than it would to come to anybody else because people would have the right to refuse you just because you have a guide dog. And when you need to be somewhere, that could be a real inconvenience. So we've been through this in many countries. We've had the debate. The debate has been won. So if Uber or Ola or one of those services tried to do this, then their app would be yanked from the app store in many countries because it would be in breach of local law. Hi, Jonathan. I'm just wanting to comment on Uber slash taxis and guide dogs, etc. You might be interested to know that in Auckland, Uber actually made the approach to Auckland Transport 
to get themselves onto the total mobility scheme here in Auckland. And so Auckland Transport said, yes, we'll talk with you and we'll let you know what the requirements were. Now, Uber pulled out of those discussions because they did not want to comply with the requirements that Total Mobility had. And one of those requirements is for them to complete quite an extensive training program. And they did not want to do that. That leads me to believe that the Uber Assist drivers don't necessarily have a high quality of training done by the company. I'd like to know who actually does that training for them, how, what's involved in that training. It would be very interesting to know because I believe that from what I've heard from different people that they've actually received better service from just your regular mainstream Uber driver than some of the, even some of the Uber Assist drivers. I also believe that Uber has created a problem for itself by creating these categories of Uber Pets and Uber Assist because drivers are now making assumptions. If you've got a disability, oh, you should be travelling with Uber Assist, not me. Well, sorry, that's our personal choice. We can travel with whoever we like. And we shouldn't be having to travel strictly with Uber Pets simply because we happen to have a service dog. With the taxi industry, I know the particular company I use here in Auckland has one or two drivers that do have medical exemptions for not carrying guide dogs. And so they will not dispatch those vehicles to people who identify that they have a service dog. And I accept and understand that they've got proper medical certificates, etc. I did actually get a driver once and I have to admire this guy's guts and bravery. He arrived at my place and he said, do you mind if I just stand away from the car while you hop in? Because he said, I've actually got a fear of dogs. And I said, no, no, that's fine. Um, I said, do you want me to travel in the back? No, no, it's all right. So I hopped in the front as, as I normally do and then he hopped in the vehicle. It seemed to be that once the dog wasn't in motion, he was seemed to be semi-okay with it. So anyway, as we started our journey, I asked him why he had his particular fear of dogs, if he knew if there was a particular reason. And he explained to me that he, when he was growing up in India, when he was about eight years old, he was attacked by a wild pack of dogs near the village where he grew up. And he's got quite extensive scarring on his body as a result of that attack. As I think you mentioned on your radio show last week, in some countries, dogs do run in these packs and they are wild. They're not as common as pets or service animals in certain countries where some of our taxi drivers come from and I said to him well I can really understand why you have the fear that you have I said you've got a genuine reason I said you should try and see if you can get an exemption and he said no he said I took on this job 
knowing I had this fear. And he said, I hope to be able to overcome my fear. And we got to the end of the trip and I said, so how are you doing? And he said, well, actually, he said, I forgot that your dog was even in the car because of telling the story. So he thanked me for that. So I really admired him and I phoned the taxi company and I spoke to one of the managers and relayed the story. And I said, this guy deserves a recommendation because I said he is facing a fear on a daily basis, but he's accepting he's taken on a job and he needs to comply with the terms of that job. And I said, I really have to admire him because he's not even going to bother to try and get an exemption. And I said, whereas other drivers will use religious reasons, etc., for driving away. Now, I don't accept the religious reasons and I'll tell you for why. There is no reason that a driver needs to come into contact with the dog if they don't wish to. So if it's a Muslim driver and he doesn't want to touch the animal, that's perfectly fine and there's no reason that he should touch it. Also, it's not that they can't necessarily have them in the vehicle or be near them because I saw a video on YouTube several years ago where there was a Muslim gentleman in the UK who got a guide dog and he took it to the mosque with him. And that caused a few ructions to start with and it was a learning curve for his community. Now, that dog doesn't enter the area in the mosque where they do their praying, but it stays outside that area in another room. But it is permitted on site. So I don't necessarily think that religion can be used as an excuse for not carrying a service animal when there are people within their own community that have service dogs. Hello, it's Byron Sykes commenting on the dog guide problem. I thought humans were past that, so I'm sorry that happened to you. I thought we were almost past that here in Louisville, Kentucky, but oops, Christy had a problem with a Z-Trip driver today who went by and passed her by when he saw the dog. Needless to say, a complaint got filed. This thing about religion, well, I respect religion on the one hand, but on the other, if your religion says you don't do around dogs, go work somewhere else. Maybe a dry cleaner. For all things Mosin at large, check out the website where you can listen to episodes online, subscribe using your favourite podcast app and contact the show. Just point your browser to podcast.mosen.org. That's podcast.mosen.org. Jonathan Mosen. Mosen at Large Podcast. Hello, Brand Walker, who says, I wanted to tell you some things I got for Christmas. The first thing I received on the first day of Christmas, Brian got for me. Uh, the first thing I received was an Instapot. I really like it because I can use it with my soup drinker or my iPhone. This means that a device which potentially may not be accessible is accessible now. I would love to get one of these because we enjoy doing a bit of cooking and healthy cooking at that, but Instapot appears not to be available 
in New Zealand. It's such a tragedy. Anyway, I guess we could try and import one. Bryant continues, I also got the newest Amazon Echo device. It is the Echo 2020, and it has superior sound quality, better even than my bigger one, which I got back in 2018. This Echo was originally for my mom, but my aunt got her the same one, so I got to keep this one, and I'm not complaining. Well, who would? The third, and perhaps the most exciting thing I got, says Bryant, was an Apple Watch Series 6. This is my first Apple Watch, and I am loving it. I really like the many health features that it has, and I find that I am more motivated to work out now. I did have one question about the watch, however. Is it possible to use hearing aids with it? I see something called hearing devices in the control center, but when I double tap, nothing seems to happen. Bryant, no, it's not possible to use MFI hearing aids as MFI hearing aids with the Apple Watch at the moment. I get the feeling Apple is working on it, but they're not there yet. And of course, if they do get there in the next major release, which will be watchOS 8, the challenge will be handoff. Because I don't know whether it's the fact that I have the original iPad Pro and whether it's improved but I cannot reliably get voiceover to hand off between my iPhone and my iPad, which has largely stopped me from using my iPad altogether, which is annoying because those iPad Pros ain't cheap. So hopefully, if they do get MFI hearing aid support into watchOS 8, they will make sure that voiceover hands over seamlessly. My understanding is that AirPod users had a similar problem for quite some time with voiceover not handing over very seamlessly between the phone and the watch. And eventually, after a lot of complaints, I believe that is resolved now. AirPods users who have the phone and the watch will, I'm sure, chime in if I'm wrong about that, or they may even want to confirm it. So what I do at the moment with the Oticon hearing aids that I have, which are MFI hearing aids, is I use a little device called the Oticon Connect Clip. And that allows you to pair with any standard Bluetooth device. So I go into the Bluetooth settings of the Apple Watch and pair the Oticon Connect clip with the watch. And then it allows me to listen to audiobooks or podcasts or whatever when I'm out and about without the phone. So that's one potential workaround. I don't recall what age you have. I, I've got the feeling it might be the same as mine, but I could be wrong about that. But if you've got any kind of streamer device that supports Bluetooth, then try pairing the watch with it. And hopefully that will do until MFI support comes along. Good on you, Brian. It sounds like you had a very eventful Christmas. This is Abby Taylor in Sheridan, Wyoming. I decided to purchase the new Humanware Brilliant BI-20X. By the time I heard Jonathan Mosen's podcast on the subject, I had already placed the order with Humanware and been told it's already out of stock, but I should it should be available by the 15th of February at the latest. So I am really getting excited. I have a suggestion for humanware as to what to do with the audio capabilities of these devices. And this may only be possible with the 40, which has the better Bluetooth capability. I may email humanware about it, but I need to, to look at the Windows key commands for the Braille display to see what is actually possible. I do know that 
after listening to the Mystic Access tutorial that you can, there are keyboard shortcuts to simulate the up and down arrows. And there's one to open the start menu. And then on the website, you can navigate with your usual screen reader keys, H for headings, B for buttons, X for checkboxes, etc. But I don't know what else is doable on the display itself with Windows. But here's my suggestion. Years ago, in 2013, my very first Braille display was an Alva BC 640. It, it's made by Alva Access. I bought it used. And for that reason, it may have been corrupted because it never really worked the way it was supposed to work. But one of the things it was supposed to be able to do with Bluetooth, because it had audio capabilities, just like the BI devices, is you could use it as a speaker with your computer so that your screen reader and any other sounds from your computer would come out of the device. And of course, this way, you can, if you're tired of working at your desk and you want to go sit in your recliner or in a comfortable chair somewhere in the next room or, or wherever and keep working, that way you could do that. And of course, with that device, there were functions for the different Windows commands like Alt plus F4 and going to the desktop and opening the start menu and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure if those commands are available on the BI devices. So uh, until I know my stuff, I'm not going to make that suggestion to humanware, but I thought I would bounce this off of everyone and see what you all think about it. And maybe some of you actually do use your Braille displays for everything and, and not use the QWERTY keyboard as much. So I'm kind of interested in how, how that works. So anyway, Jonathan, that was a great podcast about the BI devices. I enjoyed that and I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you so much, Abby. I think this was a good idea. They've got the audio, you know, they've got a speaker in there and they have Bluetooth. So I think what you're asking for would be absolutely possible to essentially expose the Brilliant as an audio device that can be paired with Windows. It'll be interesting to see if they go down that route. Just for clarification, when you are connected to another device, whether it be an iPhone running iOS or a PC running JAWS or a PC running NVDA or a Mac running VoiceOver, you get the idea. The commands and the capability will change depending on the screen reader that you are running because the commands you're talking about that actually belong to the screen reader and the operating system are not built into the Brilliant BI family. They are a function of the software that you're running at the other end. So the commands you might use, say, with Narrator, controlling your PC from the Bradient, will be different from the commands that you use to do the same thing with JAWS. When I had the Bradient for review, I didn't spend too much time in JAWS, but certainly it is possible with some Braille displays for JAWS users to completely control their device from the Braille display. I know with the Focus 40 Blue, which I have a lot of experience of, you can do the whole thing. You can do control, alt, shift, F4 <laughs> and commands like that if you want to all from the Braille display. It might take a bit of muscle memory to get there, but you can do it. And so I would imagine that those sorts of tricks are also possible with the Brilliant as well when you get the right driver installed and you're using it with your screen reader of choice. And like Abby, Jane Corona is excited about getting her brilliant and anticipating its arrival. She says, hi, Jonathan, just listened to Mosin at Large 94 about the human wear BI-20X and BI-40X 
and found it really interesting since I've pre-ordered the 40X. It'll be so good to get back to Keysoft, even the light version. But I do have a question about what format codes it recognizes, and maybe you might know. I assume it'll show $P for paragraphs, but will it show $F for page breaks? Any others? And do you have any thoughts as to why they put both a USB port and an SD card slot in the 20X, but left the SD card slot off the 40X? Waiting not so patiently for my 40X, says Jane. Lovely to hear from you, Jane. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I don't know why they left the SD card out of the 40. You would think that with the 40 cell version, it would be the kind of premium one, wouldn't you? And that they wouldn't deduct features. So I don't know what the logic is behind that. And the bad news is you're going to get no format codes at all. It's been nearly 16 years since I last used Keysoft, and I'd actually forgotten that they did those format codes until you mentioned them in this email. But no, you don't get that in this. It's a really basic scratch pad kind of app with a few more frills than some, but you don't get any of those format commands or anything like that. So when you get a paragraph, it'll wrap to a new line, but that's the extent to which you will know that there's a new paragraph. Daniel Semro is the man in the know, and he says, I received an email yesterday, Monday, from Humanware. Stating that as of March the 1st, 2021, they will no longer be supporting the Braille Note Apex. They will provide what they can until then, but March the 1st is the absolute last day. They are encouraging Apex users to trade up their units for a discount on either a new Brilliant or Braille Note Touch Plus. Now, the Braille Note Touch Plus 32 in US pricing is, according to Daniel, uh, $5,495, and you can save $800 there. The discounted price, therefore, is $4,695. If you want to go for the Brown Note Plus 18, you save $400 on that. Daniel continues, I'm sure that many listeners got this email as well, but thought I should still spread the word for those that don't get humanware updates. Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, every product reaches end of life, and I think the Apex is CE-based, so it's well and truly time to say bye-bye to the Brownotes Apex. And if you're going to have to do this, you know, it's a tricky business, especially in this market, where funding for such expensive devices can be hard to come by. It's a good time to do it when you're launching a new product line like the new Brilliant generation. And for people who've gravitated over the years since they bought a Brownotes Apex, it may be just fine to use a Brilliant, which has some of those basic note-taking functions and the book reader and all those things that we reviewed in episode 94, because they've become more comfortable with using a smartphone. So a smart move on HumanWare's part to call end of life on the Apex at this point. Podcast. Hi, Jonathan, says Michael Pantelidis. Welcome back. Can you suggest a way I can rip audio from a DVD using Windows 10 or something else? We'll ask the intelligent Mosin at Large listening audience about this, Michael, because I have a very old program now. It must be, gosh, when did it last update? Maybe 2006, called DVD Audio Extractor. It's excellent, and I paid for it, and I still have my registration code, and it still works. And I can rip audio from DVDs that way on the rare occasions that I need to do that. So I'm not up to speed with anything remotely current that might do this, so let's find out if anybody else can fill us in 
What are you using if you're extracting audio from DVD or Blu-ray discs? It's a handy thing, obviously, for a blind person to be able to do that because audio files are huge, huge. And if we can just take the audio and put them on our phones and listen to the audio, that's highly convenient. Hey, Jonathan, it's uh, Mike Fair, and things are going pretty well here. Uh, 14.4 has treated us pretty well. Uh, the Braille display we're using, the, we, we've got brilliant displays from HumanWare. Uh, no complaints. It works pretty much the same as it did before. So whatever this is seems very sort of display specific uh, to, to certain kinds. So, yeah, uh, I'm glad personally that that's the case. But, yeah, I kind of uh, hope that that gets resolved soon for other people. I've been looking at a couple of meditation apps over the past while, and uh, it's uh, it's been interesting. I've gotten Shine and Headspace, and I've sort of been comparing the two. Uh, very different kind of approaches to the whole meditation, mental wellness pr- prospect. And sh- a headspace is more accessible, I would say, by a mile and <laughs> much easier to cope with. All the buttons are labeled. Everything is uh, is, is very well put together. Uh, they even have a series on Netflix now, too, uh, that's separate from the app that you can check them out and, and get an idea of their style and their approach to the whole meditation thing. Uh, Shine is a newcomer to the space, and uh, it's it's just won an Apple Award this year, which is one of the reasons I thought I'd give it a look. Uh, it's it's I'd say, mostly accessible. It's usable. The buttons are not all labeled, and uh, there are some rough edges. So you do have to be sort of skilled and intending to make it work and be sort of patient. So there's a bit of a an issue there. It, it is workable. It's all usable. You can get at everything. It's just it's it's rough, right? It's rough around the edges accessibility-wise. Uh, but the content's interesting and kind of different, and it's sort of teaching you how to journal at the same time, getting you into journaling habits. So, yeah, kind of a different take on it, and... Uh, I, I thought it was uh, it's it's pretty refreshing so far. So I've sort of uh, I'm keeping up with both of their <laughs> meditation courses, and uh, yeah, it's it's been interesting. I'll be doing a comparison later on on uh, Kelly and Company. So more on that later. Thanks, Mike. We have a show coming up on Mosin at Large, which looks extensively at meditation and mindfulness and a range of related things at the request of a listener who asked me to recount my meditation journey. And there's no short answer to that. So we're going to be doing a major feature, and that will be accompanied by a list. You'll be able to send an email to a special email address and get an auto-response back with a huge selection of books and apps, audio and not, and other resources that can help you on your meditation journey. So do stay tuned. That won't be too far away when we do that episode. Andy Rebscher says, Hi, Jonathan. Good to hear you back in action. Regarding tech support services and the need to state that I am blind, I usually do end up revealing this. I find that if I speak confidently, the sympathy bid from the company representative becomes minimized. Having been a broadcast engineer for 40-plus years, I have probably relied on tech support people many more times than the average person might. They have always been great about explaining things or waiting patiently for me to catch up to where they are in the process of resolving an issue. Finally, I'll mention that I spoke with a support guy yesterday who was familiar with JAWS, He and I were both remotely connected to a server to troubleshoot a problem. What a cool world we live in. Hi, Jonathan. This is Allison Fallon from Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's so good to have you back. 
I hope you enjoyed your holiday. I have a question about Lady A. I have three Echo Dots, and someone helped me install them using my computer because I don't have an iPhone. Is there a way that I can get them so that they are synchronized, so that if I start one and then another starts, they won't be in different spots in the particular podcast? seems to me there should be a way, but I don't know what it is. So hopefully someone can help. Hopefully somebody can. Lovely to hear from you again, Alison, and thank you. Yes, I had a great break. I don't listen to many podcasts on my Amazon Echo. I normally listen on my phone and maybe airplay to Sonos occasionally. So I don't have a definitive answer for you, but I feel confident it must be possible. I think the first thing to establish is what service you are currently using on your Amazon Echo to get podcasts. My suspicion is that if you use a service with an account that you can log into, such as Apple Music, which is unlikely if you don't have an iPhone, Spotify, that would be likely. And of course, Amazon is now doing its own podcast service, isn't it, where you would be signing in with your Amazon account. And if you've got an Amazon Echo set up, then one presumes you do have an Amazon account. But I think if you were using one of those services, At least one would offer you that kind of feature that you're after, a bookmarking feature, where essentially it doesn't matter what you're listening to your podcast on. As long as you're logged into that one account, when you pause, it keeps a bookmark, if you will, of where you are in the podcast, so that when you resume the podcast on any other device, whether it be a second Amazon Echo or some other device, it should, you would think, pick up from where you left off. So let's open it up to our knowledgeable, informed Mosin at Large audience and find out whether anybody is achieving this with their Amazon Echo, where if they stop and then they start it on another Echo, they can pick up from where they left off and we can hopefully get this solved for you and find a path forward, Alison. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Towards the end of last year, we reflected fondly, well, mostly fondly, I think, on the decade just ending, and we talked about technology, where it had come from, and now, as we begin this new decade, it seems appropriate to talk about technology and where it's going. What would you like to see in terms of technological innovation over the next 10 years? It could be something that's obvious, it could be something incremental but significant that you feel would really enrich your life. Or it could be some really off-the-wall wish that you have, some sort of technology challenge that you think, well, maybe it will never be overcome, but you would like to see it happen. We've got a couple of emails on this, and we'll start with Rebecca Skipper, who first of all says, I got a MacBook Air with the M1 chip for Christmas, and I really like the laptop. It is responsive, and the learning curve is not as steep as I thought it would be, thanks in large part to the wonderful instructors teaching month with the Mac. One of the most impressive things about voiceover, says Rebecca, is the ability to connect the Braille with an uppercase B display and have it work automatically. I am using an Orbit reader with the Mac. Yeah, I'll just stop and say it, it is a good feature. It's just a shame that Braille on Mac OS is so mediocre, not just compared with JAWS, but compared with iOS. Braille on iOS is far more advanced than Braille on the Mac. 
Anyway, Rebecca continues, the sound quality is excellent. Now I think we're getting into Rebecca's wish list for the coming decade. She says, now I want an Apple Glass that costs less than $600 with the same camera and OCR apps found on the SE2020 and beyond. Well, I hope if they do a glass, Rebecca, that it will have LiDAR. And of course, LiDAR isn't in the SE2020. LiDAR on the Apple Glass would be fantastic if it ends up having that. And we do know that Apple is working actively on the Apple Glass. So it's a question of if, not when that will be released. And of course, the feature set remains somewhat up in the air. She continues, I would love to see a seamless handoff between the Apple Glasses and Mac, the iPhone and iPad, and the Apple Watch. I would love to have the glasses, recognize what's around me, and then transmit that information to my Mac or iPhone via my Flex Beats. Put Ira and TeamViewer on the Mac. Well, TeamViewer is already on the Mac now, Rebecca, so you should be able to download it. I don't know whether it's in the Mac App Store or whether you have to go onto the TeamViewer website, but you can download TeamViewer for the Mac and install it. There you go. I think there's a lot of interest in the Apple glasses and what they will do with them. And also these Apple tags, which all being well, we should be getting this year sometime. On Twitter, follow Mosin at Large for information about the podcast, the latest tech news and links to things we talk about on the podcast. That's Mosin at Large, all one word on Twitter. Luis has a very kind daughter, and we know this because he says, my daughter got me for Christmas a pair of Apple HomePod speakers. I am very pleased with these speakers, and let me share with your audience why. First, their price is very reasonable. Well, I guess it is when your daughter buys them for you. Oh, I see. $100 per speaker. This is surprising in view of the fact that all Apple items are pricey. So I think we must be talking about the HomePod Mini if we're talking about that price rather than the HomePod. Second, their sound quality is outstanding in view of its reduced size. When you first touch these speakers, you think, I lost my money. But of course, when you buy Apple, you are not disappointed. And this was no exception. And size is another great feature of these speakers because you can place them on your night table and they don't take a lot of space. Fourth, they work great with Siri, except that when you want to execute Siri shortcuts from other apps, such as MyTuner Radio Pro, Siri always asks you if you want to play within that app. Likewise, you can't stop the station when it is played within a third-party app, such as MyTuner Radio Pro or Receiver. Finally, VoiceOver works well with these speakers, even though you can't do much on the speaker's screen and most of their functions is done through the iPhone or through Siri. For the above considerations, I highly recommend these speakers. Actually, I'm preparing to buy a pair of HomePod speakers for my office, but of course, the Sonos Play 5 speaker is still my favorite speaker, especially now that Alexa is working in Colombia. Hi, Jonathan. This is Ibrahim from Cold Boston calling in. Hope you're having a good week so far. I had a couple of questions about uh, personal cloud backups, and um, I'm wondering what you've been using. I know you use uh, Synology in the past, and just wondering if you could talk a little more about the accessibility, if you had any new ones in the future, 
And also, I uh, just wondering if there are any other accessible personal cloud storage companies you'd recommend. Well, Ibrahim, I am still using my DS214 Play, I think is the name of it. It's a Synology device that we purchased, I think, way back in 2014. So that is quite a long time ago by technology standards. And it just sits in a corner and does its thing. It's an arrayed configuration, which means that everything is backed up onto a second hard drive, should there be hard drive failure. And everything is being backed up to a combination of Dropbox and OneDrive. So I have an off-site backup as well. Once you set all this up, you really do forget it. I very seldom log into the Synology to do anything apart from updating the packages. Packages on the Synology devices are a little bit like apps because the Synology devices run their own Synology NAS operating system. And that means that you can install everything from web servers to email servers to various music apps. The Synology apps on my phone are very accessible. And this particular Synology device has AirPlay on it. So you can actually AirPlay from the Synology app to any AirPlay device and not have your phone held up by the process of doing the AirPlay. It's getting a bit old now, so there are much faster Synology products on the market and they probably do more things. But as I say, it's just something that sits there. In terms of accessibility, it's very much a Web 2.0 application. When you go in there, it is quite busy. When I got the Synology, it wasn't accessible. And I had some great dialogue with Synology at the time, and it was made quite accessible, but probably idiosyncratic is the best way that I would describe it. You log in with your web browser, but it really doesn't feel like you're in a web page. It feels like that you're in some sort of special environment that pops up windows and has menus and that kind of stuff. And I think with a little bit of work, you can navigate your way around it. You can become familiar with it. You can also telnet into it if you're the kind of person that likes to work at the command line. And for many people, that may well be easier because it's a kind of a server environment. So I'm pretty happy. I think the next time I upgrade my network-attached storage device, it will be another Synology. I have no reason to change. There are lots of players in this space. I know Western Digital has their popular MyCloud product. There are others too. So if people have these network-attached storage devices, some companies call them personal cloud devices, essentially a purpose-built hard drive that's connected to your network that's designed to always stay on and connect both within your house and outside your house so that you can access files. Let us know what you're using, what's working for you. Perhaps you've built some sort of custom server configuration that runs on a PC. That is certainly another way of doing the same thing. So we'll open it up and see what people are using these days in terms of network-attached storage solutions. Gary O'Donoghue is reporting in, presumably from Washington, I think. He says, I too have been having one or two odd problems with Castro. First, I have noticed in one or two podcasts, including your first episode after Christmas, that the audio is doing tiny skips, just fractions of a second, but quite off-putting. It's not in all podcasts, but in several I subscribe to. Yes, confirmed, Gary. I've been talking to the Castro peeps about this. They do have a fix that is in testing, and that will be rolled out soon. So it's about bitrate. It's certain bitrate combinations that's doing it, and it's been in place since the big update just before Christmas 
it is a frustrating thing, so I'll be glad to see the back of this one. Second, says Gary, Castro hasn't been updating my podcast reliably. It got quite bad a month or so ago, so I did a reinstall of the app and its data, which appeared to fix things for a bit, but the problem is reappearing. Tricky to pin down what's going on here. I'm using an iPhone 12 Pro on iOS 14.3. I can confirm that one too, Gary, but I can also confirm quite definitively that a couple of weeks ago it got fixed. And what they did was, I think they've they've become a bit of a victim of their own success and a lot more people are flocking to Castro and that resulted in a bit of server backlog and they've addressed it by going to bigger, briefer servers. And about two weeks ago, I think, it all just cleared up And I've seen Overcast occasionally have these issues too. But uh, yes, this was a prolonged period of badness. (laughs) And uh, it is resolved for me now. So I hope it also is for you. The podcasts are coming up like clockwork now. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Hi, Jonathan. I hope your break went well. And congratulations on David for... uh, is M and Joe's engagement. A gripe that I am, I have is I've noticed people posting on social media where they spell out the first two or three words at the top of their posts. And it's in capital, so they put space between the letters, etc. I actually find it very annoying and very confusing because I have to decipher what is being spelled out and it takes time. You know, I just, if I want to read something, I will want to get to it quickly. Well, I do put emojis for my, for, uh, well, I don't use them as much, but I'm, I actually find them quite confusing trying to find the emoji I want. But I find people use them too much. Like they put a whole line of emojis. I just want to get past that. So because if there was a voice of season that skipped past all the emojis, you would, they'll be on screen, but voiceover would just skip over them. And uh, what would the implications be if Google did disable search, especially for New Zealand, because they all, tech companies always seem to plonk us with Australia, which uh, could be cost-effective market-wise, but I think we should call for independence when it comes to technology companies setting up shop in the Southern Hemisphere. Because uh, if this bill does pass and they disable search, well, what about us, you know? Thanks, David. Quite a bit to unpack in that message. I've not encountered people spacing out and capitalising social media posts regularly, but I guess we do have the choice to unfollow them, particularly if they're personal accounts. And we can point out very politely, hey, do you realize that actually this does pose some accessibility challenges for those who use screen readers? And would you consider not doing that? Obviously, I think when it comes to businesses, it's a different issue. They have a duty, I think, and in many cases, a legal obligation to make sure that their communications are accessible. And my big pet peeve at the moment is how many businesses and journalists are using Twitter and not attaching descriptions to the photos that they're including with their tweets. You've got public broadcasters, newspapers, individual journalists who really should know better. And I realize that sometimes there are situations where journalists are out in the field and they're tweeting away in real time and the pressure can be on. 
But really, I think we should be expecting a little bit better of official accounts and journalists who have some time when they're composing their tweets to attach meaningful descriptions to the photos that they're including. And I have been floating on Twitter the idea that maybe there should be an additional prompt in the Twitter user interface where if somebody attaches a photo that doesn't have a text description, a little dialogue box pops up and says something like, it's easy to make your photo more accessible to a wider group of people by adding a simple text description. Are you sure you want to post this inaccessible tweet? Even a little message that says it's the right thing or something like that, you know, for those people who do care about doing the right thing. Are you sure you want to do this? And see if that makes a difference to the number of people using the alt text feature that is built right into Twitter. If emojis are annoying you, the good news is that VoiceOver can take care of you in iOS. All you have to do is go into VoiceOver settings and then double tap verbosity, scroll through the myriad of options that are there, and you'll find a couple relating to emojis. One is that if you double tap the speak emojis option, then you won't hear them. And the other is whether you want the word emoji spoken after you find an emoji, the emoji suffix, in other words. Also, I'm pretty sure it's Twitterific that has a cool feature where you can actually turn off the speaking of emojis in Twitter names, because that can really be time-consuming, can't it? When you're scrolling through tweets and somebody has given you a barrage of emojis in their Twitter handle, so you've got to listen through them before you even know whether any of their tweets is worthwhile. Now, regarding your comment about Google, for those who are not familiar with this, there is legislation in Australia currently going through the process which would require search engines who aggregate news and sell advertising in association with that aggregation to pay content producers for the right to use that content. I really do have serious misgivings about this because I think it fundamentally breaks the concept of a free and open internet. And it's exactly what happened in the UK, where you now see TuneIn not making radio stations outside the UK available through its app, because a court ruled in the UK that TuneIn should be paying the producers of the radio stations for the right to use the content. I really think that this is quite a slippery slope and it threatens to break some of the precepts that have been so critical to freeing a large amount of knowledge and making the internet so easy to use and accessible. So Google obviously feel the same way. They've got a business interest in feeling the same way. And they have said, if this bill in Australia passes in its present form, well, then we may just pull out of Australia altogether, which means that if you go to Google in Australia to do a search, you may not be able to do a search. Of course, it'd be pretty easy to get around that. You can use a VPN, you can do any number of things, but nevertheless, that's what they're saying that they will do. Uh, David, you don't need to worry about this from a New Zealand point of view. The Google New Zealand website is a different website, and you can verify this because when you go to the Google New Zealand search site, you get the option to get Google in Te Reo Māori, and they don't have that in Australia. So it is a completely separate site. And if this law passes in Australia and Google chooses to pull out, then Google will go on, life will go on in New Zealand. 
Now, while Google is kicking up a song and dance about it in Australia, though, they have reached an agreement with, I think it's Belgium or is it France, one of those EU countries. And you have to say, well, why have they reached a different kind of deal in the EU where they've essentially conceded the point and they're belaboring the point in Australia? And I think that has fundamentally weakened Google's argument, except obviously the EU has a lot more clout and many more countries affected. So we're going to hear a lot more about this as content producers are saying that Google and Facebook, who are aggregating news and then selling the content, selling advertising on their search engines, are siphoning profits away from the actual producers of the news. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Daniel Crone likes listening to podcasts on his Mac. I know this because it says right here, I like listening to podcasts on my Mac. And it's from Daniel. And he says, not the phone. After upgrading, I found the podcast app. There is something about it I want all to know. With iTunes, one could get the feed link, which was used to subscribe to it. With podcast, one cannot find that at all. It lets one copy a link, but it does not seem to be the feed link. It's probably the Apple Podcasts link, actually, Daniel. He says, I like to have the original feed link in case I want to use my Linux machine for some podcasts. Thanks, Daniel. I agree with you. It is always nice when a podcast app gives you access to the URL of the RSS feed. There may be all sorts of reasons why you might like it. One reason, for example, is that if I'm using a podcast app and I have a problem with a particular podcast that appears to be unique to that app, it's kind of handy to send off an email to the developer and include a link to the RSS feed. So it is a shame, but I can understand why Apple wants to push you to their own podcast directory. Hello, Jonathan says Imke. I enjoyed listening to the discussion of Braille with a lowercase b versus QWERTY keyboards on last week's show, as well as your episode on Seeing AI and LiDAR. I have several thoughts and questions. Seeing AI. I have a Breville toaster oven, which is great at roasting, baking, and grilling just about anything. Unfortunately, though, it is not fully accessible. Its dials do not always turn as expected, and the starting points and increments on the temperature and time dials change depending on whether the bake, broil, pizza, cookies, etc. settings have been selected. As a result, it is difficult to set the oven accurately without feedback from the oven's LED display. I've tried to read that display with Seeing AI and other apps, but I'm having no luck. Do you or your listeners have any suggestions for other apps, devices, or strategies for accessing the contents of that display? Mm, that's a tricky one, Imki. I guess if you've tried the usual suspects, Seeing AI and Envision AI and SuperSense, that's another one that uh, people talk about, and you haven't had any luck after you've checked your distance from the display and waved it about and stuff, you may just be out of luck. Of course, depending on where you are in the world, you could try Ira or Be My Eyes. 
and get somebody to read the display in those situations to you. I think that's what I would do in a situation like that. The next heading, Braille Entry. I started to use a refreshable Braille device, Versa Braille 1, with a computer in 1983 and have always primarily used Braille Entry. I find it to be the most compact and efficient way to type because it does not require reaching to various outlying keys, especially when typing special symbols, such as those required for foreign languages and math. The fact that some combinations of operating systems, screen readers and braille devices results in buffering seems to be a deficiency of the software involved. As I am typing this email on a HandyTech Active Braille connected via USB to a Windows 10 notebook using NVDA and Firefox to access my Gmail, I am experiencing no such problems. I agree that key combinations such as Alt plus Control plus Escape, can be difficult to enter from Braille keyboards, but that, too, is a limitation of creativity on the part of the relevant software developers. These key combinations used to be relatively mnemonic and simple to enter. It seems like developers of modern interfaces have neglected to put sufficient effort into making these aspects efficient for Braille entry users. LIDAR I recently heard an interview with two leaders in the company Strap Technologies, which is developing a navigation tool for blind pedestrians that works with haptic notification through straps around the chest and shoulders. It uses LIDAR and ultrasound sensors to detect objects and features at all levels and is scheduled to be available later this year. Yeah, I've read about that. This may be a more convenient option than strapping one's iPhone to one's chest, but time will tell. Your role in Ira. I also have a personal question. Oh dear. When you stopped the Blindside podcast, you were enthusiastically going to work for Ira. I understand that you are now no longer working for them. Hey, you've caught up, Imki. <laughs> Do you mind sharing anything about how that transition came about? Not at all. I don't mind at all. In fact, it's well documented. If you go into your podcast client of choice and search for In the Arena, you will probably find several podcasts called In the Arena, but you will find one called In the Arena, The Jonathan Mosen Story. And you can also download the entire series on the Mosin.org website if you really want to. Mosin.org and then search for In the Arena. I think it's in the online publication section or something like that, but it's there. And you can download all the episodes. And I detail this. So I was happily doing my Ira thing one day, you know. And uh, I get this phone call from somebody from a recruitment agency who said to me, did you know that the chief executive of Workbridge position is available? Workbridge is an agency in New Zealand that helps disabled people find work and does a lot of public education for employers to make New Zealand a more equitable place so disabled people can succeed. It's a great organization. And I've known, of course, about Workbridge all my life. 
when I was very young, in my uh, early 20s, actually, Workbridge helped me out, which I'm forever grateful for in my broadcasting career. Anyway, I said, yes, I had heard somewhere on the grapevine that that position was available, but dude, I just got this gig and I'm really enjoying it. And the recruitment man said, look, we'd just like to send you the annual report, just in case you consider applying for it. You know, we'd quite like you to consider applying for it. So I thought, well, that's unusual. So they sent me the reports and I did apply for the position and um, here I am. So you just don't know what's going to happen in your life, do you? As John Lennon so famously said once, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And it's a privilege and an honor to be chief executive of a national organization. We have an amazing team and 22 offices right across New Zealand. And it's just a blast to be doing it. So bittersweet. It was a shame to be leaving such a thriving and exciting company as Ira, but equally pretty amazing to get a chief executive gig like that. Mosin at Large Podcast. It's the famous Jackie Brown, and she says, Hubby and I always take a listen to your podcast, and we note from the latest episode that you were looking for thoughts on the new AirPods Max. So here are my own. I am not a fan of in-ear headphones. So when I read some of the rave reviews about the new AirPods Max, I wanted to try them. My husband Martin said that if I tried them out and liked them, he would buy them for my birthday, which is a week or two from now. Wow, happy birthday in advance. Well, she says, I ordered a pair in space grey and the lightning to 3.5mm cable for an extra £35. Quite a tidy sum of £584 altogether. As ever, the packaging is nice. The headphones have a solid feel to them, but they are not uncomfortable to wear. Far from it. Pairing to my iPhone 8, running the latest iOS release, was a real breeze. All I did was hold the headphones close to my phone, and it really was as simple as that. The case in which the cups of the headphones sit is rubberized and quite different from your regular protection case. You get a lightning to USB-C cable in the box, but no wall charger. So people, take note if you don't have one. Once connected to my iPhone, I was very impressed with sound and comfort. The bass is a rumble, not a punchy head-banging thump. I personally tend to like the top end of treble, so think the AirPods Max slightly fall short at the end of the scale. But just personal preference on my part, not a reason to dislike them. I tried a few different tracks and music genres, and I was very pleased with performance. The crown and switching mode controls on the top of the right earphone are nicely located. But now to the fun bit. I have a Hi-Fi Separates system, which I have owned for 10 years now. It comprises a mix of Sony and Denon Separates, plus a Sony Connect, but it does not have Bluetooth, hence the reason why I purchased the Lightning to 3.5mm cable. When I turned on the system and hooked up the headphones with the cable, I was horrified by the sound. I found a lot of distortion coming through the headphones, 
and no amount of volume or treble and bass adjustment put it right. Wondering what might be wrong, I tried listening to the AirPods Max through my Victor Reader Trek using the cable. But even with the Trek and the AirPods Max at full volume, I still didn't have a lot of gain and sound just wasn't great for me at all. I then tried connecting the AirPods Max to my Google Pixel 4a phone, which does have a headphone jack, but it was so quiet as well. I then tried using Bluetooth on my Windows 10 PC to connect the AirPods Max, but my system didn't find them. After a lot of fumbling around, I was unable to make a successful connection with anything other than my iPhone using Bluetooth. In comparing the AirPods Max to the Sony WH-1000XM3 headphones I have, I think the noise cancelling on the Sony headphones is better. So, in essence, I am returning the AirPods Max and cable to Apple for a full refund. I am disappointed as I hoped they would work away from the Apple ecosystem. But while they are great on Apple products, they don't seem to be particularly compatible with other Bluetooth and wired devices, and you definitely lose functionality. I have seen several reviews that mention Apple's lack of cohesion with devices outside its sphere, and I think this is indeed correct. Perhaps I have been unlucky, but my conclusion is that they are not worth the asking price. They are no better than the Sony WH-1000XM3 headphones that I already have and love using on Apple, Google and Hi-Fi with the supplied cable or Bluetooth. I appreciate this is all very subjective and maybe your listeners will emphatically disagree with my conclusions, but I cannot justify keeping headphones of that price that only seem to be willing to work 100% with my iPhone. Take care and keep the chat coming. Thank you, Jackie, for that great review. It's good to get that perspective. Hello to James Muirhead. He says, I'm writing from a very grey London town. A foggy day in London town. <laughs> Although it is fairly mild, says James. I know that many of your listeners have hearing as well as sight problems. What? What? Pardon? No. And I thought it useful to let you know of the Otacon Moore hearing aids. They have just been around for a couple of months. I had to start using aids in 2013, having had above average hearing until my mid-40s. Originally, I used Resound Links after having spent nine months trialing six or seven different devices, thanks to a very patient and interested audiologist. In 2017, I moved to an Otacon OPN, or Open, as my hearing gradually deteriorated. I then tried the Otacon Open S last autumn, but found no improvement on the original Open. Last week, I started a trial with the Otacon More aids and have found them a really significant improvement. The change in my hearing was similar to going from no hearing aid to wearing one for the first time. There is still quite a lot of fine-tuning to be done, but I am certain I will be keeping them. An example of where they need to be modified is when I am on the treadmill and the squeak of my trainers drowns out my echo dot. The aids seem to focus on the loudest noise rather than the one I want to be increased in volume. Another example would be when listening to the radio, which is close to my kitchen kettle. 
As the kettle begins to heat the water, the aides seem to preferentially select and increase its volume over the radio, but I hope this can be tweaked. I also tried the Resound Marie microphone and receiver in-ear aids, which, in theory, should replicate the action of the human ear, but the experience was rather disappointing. There are some YouTube videos describing the Oticon More aids, so I will not go into technicalities in this email. Thank you for the time and effort you put into your informative podcast. Thank you, James. When I got your email, I hadn't heard of the Oticon More aids, and I can tell you that I know a lot more about them now. I am so grateful that you brought this to my attention and to the attention of other listeners who use hearing aid technology. This sounds like a remarkable breakthrough, and I would encourage anybody with hearing loss to read up on the Oticon More hearing aids. A number of things stand out. First of all, the deep neural networks that they're using is a real groundbreaking bit of technology here. There's a lot of gobbledygook and buzzwords in the hearing aid industry, and I don't think I've ever seen an industry that overpromises so much as some of the stuff that you see from hearing aid developers. And I think, James, your experience where you've tried so many products is a testimony to that. Like you, I have as well. And so many of them just don't do it for me. I was really excited by the Oticon Open S. I came into um, funding for hearing aids at the time that the Open S was just coming on the market. So I jumped straight from the Phonex that I was using, the Bolero Q, to the Open S. And I'm so pleased that I did because, of course, Oticon has a different philosophy from many other hearing aid manufacturers where they're not trying to isolate you from the background noise. And that is quite important, I think, for blind people. It really suits the way blind people need to work. We need to be aware of our environment. If you have these microphones that are isolating noise that they think are irrelevant, say, from behind you, then that does affect a blind person's O&M, you know, directionality, it's really important. So I certainly had a, a very positive experience with the Oticon Open S. But what they've done here with the more is just on a completely new level. Good to see that they're now made for iPhone and made for Android hearing aids. We should have that choice. And also it's compatible with Bluetooth LE when that becomes available. Now we have talked about Bluetooth LE in the past here on this show and what a significant breakthrough that's going to be for high quality Bluetooth from a range of devices doing some pretty impressive things. We talked, for example, when this came up on the show about the idea that when you go into a movie theater, let's say, Bluetooth LE will be able to broadcast a signal that can be picked up by any compatible device so that you can have a very high quality stereo sound coming directly from the movie theater right into your hearing aids without any kind of accessory. And there's all sorts of other stuff being planned. So the fact that you can buy these Oticon More aids today and have a guarantee that it's going to support that technology is fantastic. Another thing that stood out for me about the Oticon More is the remote support that audiologists can provide to you. Now, it seems to me that this could open up a real niche. If you're not limited by having to visit an audiologist to get really good hearing configuration, then there could be audiologists who specialize in blind people. 
because it is a tricky business. You mentioned in your email, James, about having a patient audiologist. Finding an audiologist is one of the biggest challenges if ever I move cities. Finding an audiologist who's willing to experiment, who really takes this as a challenge, it can make the difference being able to function properly in your job, in your social life, and just failing. It is so important. So if you can find an audiologist who might decide to specialize in providing remote support to blind hearing aid wearers, and you can contact them from anywhere in the world and work with them, and they truly understand the issues, and they can configure your hearing aids over the internet, then super duper, bring it on. I'm going to hang on a little bit longer before I talk to my audiologist about the Oticon more for a couple of reasons. First, there doesn't appear to be a BTE behind the ear configuration for these yet. And it's the behind the ear configuration that gives me my direct audio input, which is the technology that allows me to connect directly to a headphone jack via a cable so that there's zero latency and minimal battery drain and I can just plug into any headphone jack via a cable. That's a really important feature for me. I'm plugged into my mixer with my hearing aids right now, and so there's no configuration that would allow that at the moment. You'd have to use a streamer, and that introduces latency and battery drain and mean and nasty things. The other thing, too, is that at the moment, there's only a rechargeable option available. I would hate to be in a situation where for whatever reason, maybe it didn't charge when I thought it did or something weird's going on with the lithium battery where I'm at a meeting or giving a presentation and suddenly I'm going flat and there's a whole bunch of nothing I can do about it. So I like the comfort of having on my keyring a little battery holder and it has a couple of freshly charged hearing aid batteries there. So if ever I go flat, I can just swap them out and keep going. But that'll come. And the Oticon more sounds like incredible technology. Of course, the big question is, when do you jump on the bandwagon? Here in New Zealand, we have to wait five to six years to be eligible for funding. If I really felt it was going to make a big enough difference, I'm very fortunate that I could probably manage it. I'd be interested to know whether that's the case for people in Britain. How often does the NHS let you get a whole lot of hearing aid kit? Because it's not cheap, is it? And of course, similarly with insurance in the United States, how easy is it for blind people who really rely on their hearing to be able to access these advantages, these innovations? Uh, Anywhere in the world, it would be interesting to hear your experiences about how you get your hearing aid technology funded. But thank you so much for alerting us to this, James. And please, if you have time, Let us know how you get on with the tweaks that you were talking about. I see that in the level one version of the Oticon more, there are 24 different parameters that you can assign. So that sounds like a lot of fun. I would enjoy working with an audiologist on being able to make all of those tweaks. While we're talking Oticon, I am really pleased to see a new version of the Oticon on app. And the big new feature, which is certainly working with my OpenS hearing aids, is that they have a three-band graphic equalizer that affects the sound that you get from made-for-iPhone devices. And it's a bit quirky, but they have made an effort to make it accessible. Each band is configurable using the actions rotor, where you can increase and decrease the EQ, essentially. So it's quite fun to play with that. 
I don't know whether there's a way to save that, though, because every time I turn the aids back on, it's gone back to its defaults. It might be that the save button is not accessible, so I'll have to check that out. But some cool innovations coming from Oticon. And of course, it's a very competitive industry. So I think we'll see a lot with machine learning. And it's a question of when do you jump, isn't it? Because the longer you wait, you know that this industry is changing so quickly and there'll be something better coming along from Oticon and other manufacturers in the near future. Jane Jordan aspires to send me a typo-free email. Well, let's see how we go with this. Hi, Jonathan. Hope you had a great summer break and are having fun back at work. I've gotten behind, so I don't know if this was previously covered. Because I don't like using our old stove and oven, and whenever we want to replace what we have, the landlord wants to replace it with cheap, we've decided to get the Amazon Smart Oven with a Braille overlay. It also comes with an Echo Dot, which I've set up in the kitchen. Since I am the Echo Dot enthusiast in the household, both speakers are linked to my account. The Smart Oven comes with an Echo Dot for free, and I got an Echo Dot for Christmas, thanks to Heather. Narrator's note, Heather is Jane's daughter. End narrator's note. I also spend a lot of time playing Popcorn Tycoon and Beach Tycoon, any other tycoon games like that, for the Echo that I've missed. But back to the original purpose for this email. Have you or any other listeners used this smart oven? Do you have any tips and tricks to recommend? Also, how can I set up the Echo Dots so Eric and Heather can use them with their accounts? I'm pretty sure I remember you and Bonnie switching between accounts, but I don't know how you did it or got everything set up. First of all, you did send me a typo-free email, so you deserve much congratulations and marvellousness for that. Regarding the smart oven, We don't have that available in New Zealand. I guess we could try and import it. Could be all sorts of fun and games with uh, voltage, though, and it would be a large-ish item to import. So I've not played with this. I would love one. If anybody has any tips and tricks on the Smart Oven, or you even want to send us in a demo of using the Smart Oven, now that could be fun, or you can clue Jane in on anything she should know, please feel free to share it with the Mosin at Large audience. As for the account thing and having multiple accounts on your Amazon Echo, I believe this is all linked to Amazon Household. I find the whole Amazon Household thing quite complicated, but when it's working, it is actually really good. Bonnie and I have an Amazon Household that we've set up, and I think if you Google on Amazon Household, you will find the appropriate page on Amazon's website. And it allows us to do things like sharing Kindle books and Audible books. So we have one of those really big Audible plans, which gives us 24 credits at the beginning of the year to use any time throughout the year, because sometimes I have more time to read than at other times. Last year, we didn't even get through our 24 credits because I'm kind of off audiobooks for the most part. Anyway, we have this plan and it's associated with Bonnie's account. But because we have an Amazon household set up, it means that any book that Bonnie buys on her Audible account, I can get on my Audible account and read on my Audible app. It does not appear to work in the Windows 10 Audible, but you can use the Audible Cloud Player, but it does work in most other places. Similarly, we can read each other's Kindle books, which is great. And I believe that is what is allowing us to set up a second account on the soup drinkers throughout our house. 
and we can just say Soup Drinker switch accounts and it toggles between my account and Bonnie's account. So it works really well. Now, in your case, not only do you have two adults in the house, but you also have a child. I think for that, you might need to use Amazon free time, which is a kid's thing, but I'm a little bit vague on that. I think if you Google on using Alexa with multiple accounts or something, it should come right up and give you some advice on how to set it up. But once it's done, we haven't had to think about it again. We just tell the drinker to switch accounts and uh, off it goes. We say aloha to KL Wright, who is writing, which is highly appropriate. So aloha, KL. She says, hello, Jonathan. I just got a Lenovo gaming laptop a few weeks ago. It has a 512 gigabyte solid state drive and boots up pretty fast. Gosh, it is amazing what a difference a solid state drive makes in terms of boot speed, isn't it? She continues, this is a Legion 5 seven generation i7 processor it's got eight gigabytes of ram running the latest jaws of course she says i seem to use it more when i'm in meetings with zoom and teams i am happy that people tell me that they can't see me when i use the webcam to move the camera down or it's dark i also like the webcam on this computer because there is a switch to hide the lens if I'm not using it. This week, one of my friends who I'm teaching at work has a Dell laptop and she has two USB-C ports. So we had to get a USB-C to USB-A adapter so she can use her keyboard with the computer. This computer has a four-hour battery life, which is not too bad. Thanks, Cal. Yeah, Lenovo makes some really great stuff. I've driven Lenovo ThinkPads over the years and really like them. We had a bad run with Bonnie's Lenovo ThinkPad that we purchased for her. It had the built-in 4G and all sorts of things. It was a ThinkPad X1 Carbon. We got it two or three years ago, and it kept developing very strange battery issues, and it was just a disaster, and that's quite unusual. It just goes to show that you can have bad luck with any computer. But as for the four hours of battery life... I would have thought that is really, really low by today's laptop standards. But then those gaming laptops do have pretty grunty, fast processors and you pay a price and that price is the battery life. Ah, that music's always very sweet and relaxing, just like the highly sweet and relaxing Bonnie Mosin. Hi, guys. Welcome to you. Hi. Where do we begin? I tell you what we can begin with, actually. We've got a very interesting little tweet coming through from Caroline Taves. Okay. And she says, DVD audio extractor, which I talked about earlier in the show, is alive and well. Oh, that's good. I am thrilled to hear this. So they changed their website somewhere along the line. For quite a long time, I wasn't extracting DVDs. And when I got the desktop built by Henry, the wonder son-in-law, We did actually get a a DVD drive put in here just in case I ever need to extract. So somewhere along the line, they changed the website. And you can now go to DVDAE, which is very sort of – that's an acronym. DVDaudioextractor.com. And it's still there, accessible as ever, and being updated. Oh, that's good. Hallelujah. That's good. Thank you very much, Caroline. Thanks for sharing that. That's what this show is all about, sharing information. Sharing information. Tremendous. Who would have thought that we would have another – we 
laptop device at the house. I have been having some really interesting discussions in my day job about how the government and various other entities are providing Chromebooks to people. And I knew that Chromebooks have a screen reader called Chromevox. And the last time I really had a serious look at Chromevox was when it was also, I think they call it Chromevox Classic now. And they have this um, utility that could actually also run in the Chrome browser. But then they completely redid Chromevox. And I haven't got up close and personal. So I thought, how viable is it for a blind person to function with a Chromebook? And I'm going to be doing at some point on Mosin at Large, a very extensive demonstration of working with the Chromebox and Chromebook because I got one because it was important for me to have one for work, actually, and understand what we're dealing with. And it was uh, it's it's been interesting. Mm -hmm. We did the shopping on Friday. I've been playing with it. Yeah, I was I took Friday off. So when I got home from being out at the mall and stuff, we went out and got it. These are pretty low cost. I think that's the exciting thing. Yeah, is that they're they're pretty very cheap. You know, you can. You can get a good Chromebook in the United States market for under under two hundred dollars, mm-hmm. and it's got the screen reader built in, so there's nothing to buy, nothing to install. So I will, in a few weeks, probably do an episode or two on Chromebox and the Chromebook and how it all works and what you can do. And it's it. a very robust looking machine. Yeah, because they're designed for kids. You see, especially yeah. to take on. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of school systems little... give them out to students. Give them just. Or, or you probably have to pay for them somehow, but, you know, they do give them to students. Yeah. Or you're required to have them. You can use cloud services these yeah. days, and and uh, it's it's quite viable. Also, for content consumption, if you're not the kind of person that creates a lot of content, I mean, you can quite mm. accurately access websites. You can watch YouTube and Netflix, and it yeah. runs Android apps now. So I'm looking forward to doing the demo. I think people will be quite interested. Yeah, I think they will because it's just another tool in the toolbar. It doesn't look like – I don't know what – That's such a cliche, isn't it, now? Yes. Another tool in the in toolbox. toolbox. Yeah. Probably a lot of people don't even know what's in a toolbox. <laughs> um, but it. I don't know why I didn't think it looked like what I thought it looked like. I thought it was smaller. I thought it was more tablet-looking for some reason, like a netbook. Kind oh, of. No. No. no, every time you say netbook, it just makes me. My netbook was perfectly fine. Got a perfectly good netbook. I had a Samsung netbook. It was I can't that was what an it... Acer. I guess netbooks have been replaced somewhat by Chromebooks. Yeah, I guess that's probably the closest equivalent, maybe. Yeah, yeah, because the netbooks were pretty slow and yeah. crawling along, and of course the trouble was they were running Windows on them, which yeah. is a pretty big, beefy operating Mine system. Mine wasn't that slow. I mean, it. it... It served its purpose. Well, I'm glad you were happy. That's the main thing. Mm -hmm. Live and let live. That's what I say. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin.